Learning to capture our thoughts matters. Because how we think shapes how we live. Jenny Allen has been fascinated by the subject of neuroscience for years, ever since Kate, her brilliant daughter, began educating her on the science of the brain. When Kate, now a junior in high school, was in seventh grade, she came home from school one afternoon and announced that she was going to cure Alzheimer's disease someday. Years later, she is still reading books and articles on the subject, listening to TED Talks, and sharing research information with Jenny, her mom. Did you know that an estimated 60 to 80 percent of visits to primary care physicians have a stress-related component? Did you know that research shows that 75 to 98 percent of mental, physical, and behavioral illness comes from one's thought life? Did you know that, with what we know about the brain today when scripture is talking about the heart, it really could be talking about the mind and the emotions we experience in our brains? Over time, Kate's fascination became Jenny's. Jenny found that things she learns from science are scattered throughout the Bible, and many of the truths in the Bible concerning our thought lives have been backed up by science. This is very important if you consider the idea that taking control of our minds could be the key to finding peace in other parts of our lives. There is much we don't know about the brain. We once thought of the mind as an immutable thing. The brain you were born with and the way it worked, or didn't, was just, how it was, no sense fretting over what can't be changed. We now know that the brain is constantly changing, whether or not we intend for it to. In hopes of discovering how women can break free from problematic patterns, Jenny started picking up heady books about the mind, neuroscience, and about how real change occurs. She watched TED Talks about our brain's plasticity, listened to brainy podcasts, watched brainy documentaries, talked to brainy people. She saw a pattern at work in many people. Emotions were leading us to thoughts, and those thoughts were dictating our decisions, and our decisions were determining behaviors, and then the behaviors were shaping our relationships, all of which would take us back to either healthy or unhealthy thoughts. Round and round and round we go, spinning down, seemingly out of control, our lives become defined by this endless cycle. Depressing. Unless. Unless there is a way to interrupt it. What's good about this news is that we can change our thinking. The Bible tells us so. Jenny's deep dive into the inner workings of the brain confirmed what the Bible says, we can take every thought captive. Not only can our thoughts be changed, but we can be the ones to change them. You will discover how in the following chapters. Did you know? The average person has more than 30,000 thoughts per day. Of those, so many are negative that according to researchers, the vast majority of the illnesses that plague us today are a direct result of toxic thought life. These lies, I'm helpless, I'm worthless, shape our thinking, our emotions, and the way we respond to the world around us. As a college grad with a degree in broadcast journalism, Jenny was interviewing for a job at a news station. Two men from the station took her and her friend to dinner. The men didn't talk about the job, they were trying to get to know the ladies. After realizing the men were hitting on her and her friend, Jenny sat and thought, I will never be taken seriously in business by men. This thought made her believe she did not have anything to offer as a woman in business. This was Jenny building a case against her education, training, and gifts that affected her for years to come. At a later time, Jenny lost her temper with her eight-year-old son. She lay in bed later that night and thought, I am failing as a parent, and for years, off and on, that thought twisted its way deeper into her mind. Jenny and her husband had their first real fight as a newly married couple. He ignored her, and she slammed some doors pretty hard. He moved on, and Jenny couldn't stop thinking, he doesn't really love me, and as a result, her mind started to build a case against her marriage. 
The thing is, Jenny has always believed lies. And not just believed them but built entire chapters of her life around them. This may hold true for you too. No human is ever meant to be the person who fills our souls or holds in place our worth. Only God can do that. But until you throw off the lie that God's love isn't for you, your emotions, decisions, behaviors, and relationships will remain twisted up in the mistaken belief that you are worthless. When we begin to think about our thoughts, perhaps for the first time, we can stop the downward spiral. We can reset and redirect them. That's our hope. Not that we would wrestle each and every fear, but that we would allow God to take up so much space in our thinking that our fears will shrink in comparison. If God is exalted, a thousand minor problems will be solved at once, tilde a w tozer. Sign up for that. Want to know a secret? We can have that. But please know that the enemy of our souls has no intention of releasing his grip on our minds without a fight. Note, he doesn't play fair. Did you know? Lies trap us in their cycle of distraction and distortion and pain, preventing us from recognizing the truth we should believe. The danger of toxic thinking produces an alternate reality, one in which distorted reasoning actually seems to make sense. On her way to her parents' home after a speaking engagement, Jenny called her husband Zach. They had an argument before Jenny left for town. The first thing Zach said after picking her call was, Hey, babe. The fight's over, okay? While still on the phone, Jenny peppered him with questions. How are our finances? Are we at odds with anyone? How are the kids? We need to circle the wagons, Zach, Jenny said. What? Was our herd of cattle in danger? replied Zach. Truth is, Jenny didn't know where the danger might be, and she didn't exactly want to find out. Why are you worried, Jenny? Zach asked, wondering what went down at the Baptist church. On the phone that night, they both worked through all the parts of their lives that were within their control and made sure there wasn't an obvious place for an attack. This made them relax a little. But at night, after experiencing absolute certainty in her faith, every night without fail, she would wake at 3 a.m. in a momentary panic. It's not like she wasn't accustomed to waking in the middle of the night, but this time the wakefulness was different. Her mind was racing, and it terrified her, she would circle for hours in the middle of the night. It started with small thoughts and fears, wondering whether she was behind on laundry, worrying about one of her kids, but it would quickly move to bigger fears. Is God real? She was spending her life for him, and that doubt suggested a terrifying possibility, that she was wasting her life. In the dark, alone, in the quiet, she would push the thought away, but it seemed to yo-yo back into her brain, a nagging question she couldn't shake. Ironically, her middle name is Faith, yet hers seemed to be eroding. I'm helpless. I'm worthless. I'm unlovable. They're in bed, 3 a.m. attack after 3 a.m. attack, Jenny somehow fell prey to believing all three. Everything she'd believed before meant nothing. God meant nothing. Life meant nothing. She was helpless, because she was nothing. She was worthless, because she was nothing. She was unlovable, because who loves nothing? Around this time, Jenny's family went to see the latest Avengers movie, Infinity War. In the end, some of her favorite superheroes just vanished, crumbling to ash and blowing away as if they'd never been there as if they'd never existed at all. As if their lives meant nothing. She sat in that theater, tormented by the idea that this was her destiny too. Whatever fulfillment she'd experienced, whatever impact she'd known, all of it was bound for vaporization. Nothing would matter in the end. She would be in the dark, in a grave. The end. No God. No rescue. She was nothing. Her life meant nothing. Nothing mattered now. If there is no God, then who cares about anything? 
For 18 months straight, more than 500 days, this is what she thought, until she learned to think differently about her thoughts. Until she remembered she had a choice. Alone in the dark, the devil can tell you whatever the hell he wants. You're going to think I've lost my mind, I mean, really, it's possible I've actually lost my mind. On the bench seats of a bus in a remote region of Uganda, Jenny told her friends Esther and Anne what she had been experiencing, on months of 3 a.m. Wake-up calls, the doubt, the unbelief, the terrifying sense that she'd lost her spiritual footing, was precipitated by their having observed her melting down 30 minutes prior in the office of the Ugandan officials they'd been meeting with. I don't know what I believe anymore. She said. It's been dark, worse than I know how to say. I've been questioning everything for so many months. I don't know if I still believe in God. I think that maybe I don't. Anne studied Jenny's face with her characteristic intensity, waiting until she took a breath to insert her thoughts. No no, she said. I know you. I know your faith. I have walked with you and watched you all this time. Jenny looked at her, wide-eyed, desperate for her perspective to be true. Jenny, this is the enemy, she said. None of this is from God. This awfulness you've been experiencing, this isn't who you are. As her words pierced Jenny's inner chaos and penetrated her mind, she let her eyes fall shut and nodded her head. The catalyst of her emotional meltdown in that Ugandan office was the startling experience of hearing a stranger proclaim intimately familiar words. During many of those 500-plus angst-ridden nights back home, the only solace Jenny could find was in obsessively reciting a passage of scripture that she hoped and prayed would keep her tethered to her faith in God. Years earlier, she'd memorized Psalm chapter 139, and there in the black darkness of her bedroom, her mind whirring with doubt and fear, she'd whisper the passage. She was banking on these words being true, specifically the ones where David, the author of this psalm, said that try though we might, there is, in fact, no way to escape the presence of God. She wanted that to be true. She needed that to be true. So, she'd whispered those words into the dark with desperate passion, again and again, and again. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Tilda Romans chapter 12 verse 2. After Anne, Esther and Jenny returned home from Uganda, Anne laid out a plan of attack. Anne decided that for 24 hours, they will stand in solidarity against whomever or whatever had pulled Jenny so deep into the pit of unbelief and doubt, they would together pray and fast from all food and drink. They pray for Jenny's confidence. They pray for her steadiness. They pray for her faith. After the period of fasting and prayer, her brain felt newly awake and her thinking sharp and clear, as if she'd been peering through a heavy fog that suddenly lifted. She set out to understand what scripture tells us about our minds. Jenny started studying, and the first verse that she began to dissect was from Paul, Do not be conformed to this world, he said in Romans chapter 12 verse 2, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The moment when truth pierced her darkness, and everything shifted. Did you know? You can change in an instant. Science proves we can. Our brains are full of neural pathways, some shallow and moldable, and some grooves dug deep from a lifetime of toxic thoughts. In both cases, God is mighty to save. In both cases, He's mighty to heal. Every great or horrible act we see in history and in our lives is preceded by a thought. This is where you will learn how to fight. Remember, the greatest spiritual battle of our generation is being fought between our ears. This is the epicenter of the battle. 
Before Eve ate the fruit, she had a thought, it was pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. And then, she took some and ate it. David, before he sinned with Bathsheba and had her husband killed, had a thought, the woman was very beautiful. Before Mary birthed Jesus, she had a thought, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Before Jesus chose to go to the cross, he had a thought, Father, dot not my will, but yours, be done. Every great or horrible act we see in history and in our lives is preceded by a thought. And that one thought multiplies into many thoughts that develop into a mindset, often without our even realizing it. Our goal is to be aware of our thoughts and deliberately build them into mindsets that lead to the outcomes we want and the outcomes God wants for us. When we get confused about or distracted from the main point, we end up squabbling about inconsequential issues, using all our energy to fight the wrong enemy without realizing we've been duped. If we're not careful, we'll look up one day and realize we've been in the wrong battle all along. If one of the greatest tools of the enemy is confusion, when we're confused, he wins the day. Let's consider the main purpose of this chapter, the problem we face, the mission we embrace, and the victory that's ours in the end. The problem. Every toxic thought, spiraling emotional cycle, and the trap of the enemy we fall for somehow deep down involves a wrong belief about God. Romans chapter 8 lays it out so clearly, a mindset on the flesh leads to sin and death, and a mindset on the spirit leads to life and peace. That is the simple reality we face. Sometimes attack comes directly from Satan, and his strategy is obvious. He tempts with evil and loves to inflict suffering. Usually, however, he is sneaky. He tempts with successes and hypnotizes with comforts until we are numb to and apathetic about all that matters. The mission. To defend ourselves in the midst of battle, we will learn to name the specific enemies we each are facing. Jenny identifies seven enemies she sees rampant and warring against our minds. We will learn to employ the right weapons at the right time to overcome the enemy, enjoy renewed intimacy with Jesus, and walk in greater freedom than we have before. Few. Big task. Thankfully for us, big God. The victory that is ours. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, God reminds Israel that he is with them in their battles and that he is with us. Ready for the good news? Through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, God has rendered the fights we face his fights too. Because of Jesus, every fight has been ultimately won. Victory? It's already yours. What's left for us is to claim that victory. We are going to look at both the enemies of our minds and the truths that set us free. If God is in us and is for us, then we can choose to fight from a place of victory. We can stand confident that God will prevail. Did you know? One God-honoring thought has the potential to change the trajectory of both history and eternity. Just as one uninterrupted lie in your head has the potential to bring about unimaginable destruction in the world around you. We need time with God alone, in the quiet, where we can hear His healing voice. During Jenny's 18-month season of doubt and heaviness, she rarely chose time alone with God, outside of studying and preparing for Bible teaching. Her tendency was to make it through the night and overcome the ensuing exhaustion with coffee, and then more coffee after that, as she went careening through her day. If she could stay busy, her not-so-concrete thinking went, the doubt couldn't catch her. If she stayed distracted, she could feel no pain. Because if she slowed down enough to look at her soul, she might be overwhelmed by all that needed fixing. She didn't want to hear what God might want to say to her, or take the risk that he would remain silent, hidden, deepening her doubt about his existence, his love. There are so many ways we avoid silence, so many types of noise we choose to fill the gaping voids in our souls. Social media is just the obvious one. 
We keep music playing in the car or streaming through our headphones. We pack our schedules with all the good things we think we should be doing. We juggle committees and demanding jobs and try to keep up with an unrealistic number of friends, yet we feel isolated. We are often doing so much for God but barely meeting with Him. And we feel as if we are failing everywhere, we look. Amid all this busyness, we've made it impossible to hear His voice saying, Be still, and know that I am God. What are we afraid might be found out? Here are a few things Jenny have seen, both in her life and in the lives of those she knows and love. 1. The fear of being put to work. Sitting alone with God has a way of bringing action items that we try so hard to avoid to the surface of our consciousness. Need to forgive someone who wronged you? Reach out to the person you hurt? 2. The fear of being asked to change. Worse still, what if solitude reveals not just a specific action you need to take but rather a broader issue you need to repent of? 3. The fear that you're all alone in the world. Quiet time isn't so quiet, is it? Our heads actually get noisier when the noise all around us falls away. Behind every one of these fears is a lie, I cannot face God as I am. All we can see at first is the mess. Here's the truth, we are messed up, every one of us. This is exactly why we need time with God alone, in the quiet, where we can hear His healing voice. We have a choice between chaos and quiet, between noise and solitude with God, between denial and healing. The antidote to running from ourselves is running to the only one who helps us get over ourselves. The lie is that we will be shamed. The truth is that the God who is creator and sovereign over the universe and the God who conquered sin and death is the same God who wants to be with you in your pain, doubt, shame, and other circumstances. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. The thing that became abundantly clear to Jenny, once she initiated contact with God again, was that the fears she harbored about connecting with Him were completely unfounded. When we humble ourselves before God, submitting fully to Him, regardless of what has kept us away, and regardless of what we were doing while we were away and for how long we allowed that chasm to grow, we find He was always there, waiting for us to come back. Did you know? Inappropriate thoughts can be combated with positive thoughts, such as thinking of a new hobby, playing music, repeating an inspiring quote, or some other positive activity, wrote Sam Black from Covenant Eyes. Did you know? Studies have demonstrated that subjects who meditated for a short time showed increased alpha waves the relaxed brain waves and decreased anxiety and depression. God is calling us away from independence. Community is essential. We find ourselves in a generation that has made an idol out of the very thing God is calling us away from, independence. The entirety of scripture assumes community as a given in the life of a God follower. In the Old Testament, community develops within a people group, while in the New Testament, it develops within local churches. We are village people, built to be known and loved and seen. Nearly every people group in every generation has gathered around fires in communities that accomplish this, even if imperfectly. The first enemy, distraction, keeps us from seeking help from God for the chaos in our heads. This second enemy, shame, keeps us from pulling others into help. Jenny didn't mean to isolate herself in the spiral of doubt for 18 months, she just never got around to expressing, aloud, what she was going through. Jenny's friend, Kurt Thompson, a psychiatrist and brilliant thinker on everything related to the brain, says that no matter how strong someone looks on the outside, every person walking the planet has this deeply embedded fear that haunts them day by day. If anyone really knew you, the fear whispers, they'd leave you. This is the lie of shame. This is the lie that shatters your self-worth, the lie that reminds you over and over of the real you that you don't want others to see. 
Our bodies are hardwired for connection with others. Have you ever heard of mirror neurons? When you are sitting across from a friend during coffee, both of your mirror neuron systems are firing. These neurons are at work when your friend smiles, letting you experience the feeling associated with smiling. The part of your brain that activates when you feel rejected or uninvited by a friend is the same part of your brain that fires when you're in physical pain. Maybe this is why breakups and severed friendships literally hurt. When we isolate ourselves, we switch into self-preservation mode. We may respond more harshly to a friend who says the wrong thing at the wrong time or get defensive when a coworker gently critiques our project. Loneliness can make us think that everything is a threat, even if there is no real threat to be found. Loneliness has been linked to heart disease, and depression, and chronic stress, and poor sleep, and depression, and chronic stress, and poor sleep. If we want to approach life fully in the way that Jesus himself modeled, then we will do life together instead of choosing to go it alone. We weren't made to celebrate victory alone. We weren't made to suffer hardship alone. We weren't made to walk through the dialiness of life alone. We weren't made to be alone with our thoughts. We were made to reach out, to connect, to stay tethered. We were made to live together in the light. The enemy has ensnared us with two little words, what if? How many of us are dragging through our days, weighed down by anxiety? Many of us find our thoughts circling around problematic circumstances or people. For others, anxiety has become the soundtrack of our days, so familiar we hardly notice it playing in the background of every scene. The enemy has ensnared us with two little words, what if? With those two little words, he sets our imaginations whirling, spinning tales of the doom that lurks ahead. But our tool for defeating, what if, is, not surprisingly, found in two words, because God. Because God clothes the lilies of the field and feeds the birds of the air, we don't need to be anxious about tomorrow. Because God has poured his love into our hearts, our hope will not be put to shame. Because God chose us to be saved by his strength, we can stand firm in our faith no matter what the day holds. Anxiety says, what if? What if I get too close to this person, and she manipulates me like the last friend I trusted? What if my spouse cheats on me? What if my children die tragically? What if my boss decides I'm expendable? What if? What if? Certainly, there are healthy levels of anxiety that signal our brains to be afraid of things that are truly worth being afraid of, like a bear in the woods or oncoming traffic when we cross a street. As an editor for Medical News Today noted, it is when this life-saving mechanism is triggered at inappropriate times or gets stuck in the on position that it becomes a problem. The type of anxiety that sends our thoughts spiraling is when our emotional reaction to scary things goes beyond rational to illogical because our brain's fear networks are in overdrive. Truth is the most powerful weapon we have against the enemy, who is a liar and the father of lies, so, we fight the enemy with whatever is true, meaning, whatever is real. Take a look at the tool on the facing page. Take one of the anxious thoughts you have running around in that head of yours and write it down. So, what is the thought? Now diagnose the thought. Is it true? Take it one step further and consider what does God say about this thought? To answer that question, you consult scripture, and you do that with trusted people in your community. You say, here's this thought, and what does God say about it? What is the truth? Then you have to make a choice, will you believe God or believe the lie? Did you know? The very hairs on your head are all numbered. So, don't be afraid, you are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. Conclusion. You know, this is what this entire book comes down to, our thoughts being wholly consumed by the mind of Christ. 
This matters because, as we looked at earlier, our thoughts dictate our beliefs, which dictate our actions, which form our habits, which compose the sum of our lives. As we think, so we live. When we think of Christ, we live on the foundation of Christ, our gaze fixed immovably on Him. Wind? What wind? Waves? What waves? We step. We walk. We make it across that sea. Prison? Well, okay. At least the guards might be saved. Shipwreck? Hmm, okay. Apparently, God wants me here instead of there, where the ship was headed. A whole new way to think, that's what we're after here. Try this, choose not to think negative thoughts. When you choose not to think that negative thought, and you replace it with a positive one, instead, you aren't just shifting your own reality. You're shifting reality for the whole human species. You're adding to the sum of kindness and compassion in the world. You're reinforcing that new reality field. You're helping transform it into an irresistible force that turns the tide of history. In other words, we all have contagious minds.